As a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or legal advice. With that said, we hope you enjoy the episode. The most onerous type of attack against the physician is not even their license, it's their freedom, meaning interacting with the criminal justice system. And I've seen physicians getting getting beaten up on three fronts. One is civil liability, just being sued for negligence. Uh, number two, um, their license being attacked, um, so their ability to make a living um, is being challenged. And then number three, from the, in the criminal justice system where their freedom is at risk. And a lot of the strategies on how to defend against these run across purposes with each other. For right. example, um, if in a um, in a criminal case, most most defense lawyers will say, I'll do the talking for you. Shut up. Don't you don't talk. <laughs> Meaning that <laughs> the, the state has the state of the federal government has the burden of proof. They're the ones that have to make the case to prove beyond um, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you um, are guilty um, with civil liability. It's a coin flip preponderance of evidence. And so you even though your attorney may tell you to shut up, it's not going to be as deleterious. The worst case scenario is you're a professional li- liability carrier and you have to make a payment. But with the board, you you probably do want to talk. You want to be able to get out your message to defend your license. So you're, you generally have three sets of lawyers in the situation I just discussed. They're all falling back on the familiar playbook, you know, mm-hmm. which is if you're a criminal defense attorney, let the prosecutor make their case and make it as hard as possible for them to prove it. Um, if you're a licensed defense attorney, then the skill set is diplomacy on how to explain to the to the board how your practice is entirely reasonable and comports with the standard of care. But if you're fighting all these fights at the same time, it's stressful, expensive, and often at cross purposes with one another. It's not a place most people should be playing. No, I absolutely agree with you on that. And just to to go into briefly the the controlled substance aspect of it, the the testosterone and other anabolic steroids were made into controlled substances uh, into the the same um, basic classification as heroin and cocaine and and oxycodone in 1990. And it was really an outgrowth of the 1988 Seoul Olympics when the Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson broke all the records uh, in the 100 meters and then tested positive for anabolic steroids. Is that Carl Lewis? I can't remember. Did he, he did. He beat the. He well, so, yeah. So the Canadian beat the American. So you can imagine what the implications Un- of that would be. Unforgettable. Right. Yes. And, and so Congress held a whole lot of hearings to try to ascertain what was going to happen in sports. I mean, are we going to, were we going to lose the integrity of sports because of this doping issue? And what could happen then? Would the public turn and would, you know, there would lost profits? I mean, wh- where does it all go? And so to solve this athletic cheating problem, Congress made anabolic steroids, including testosterone, into a controlled substance. And so since that took effect in 1991, the, you know, testosterone has had this this classification that puts it in with other drugs of abuse. 
And so if somebody is selling testosterone on the black market, um, that can be treated just like selling other types of black market drugs or, or narcotics. And so for, for physicians, well, if they're prescribing or dispensing the drug, um, well, then they have to have a legitimate medical purpose in doing that. And that gets back to what we talked about before. There is a bit of good news when it comes to these these criminal aspects. So charging a doctor under the Federal Controlled Substances Act for prescribing a controlled substance has changed a little bit. Uh, there was a new case that um, just came down the pike uh, at the Supreme Court, and um, it's it's R U A N Ron versus the United States. It was decided with another case called Khan. And what happened was these were two medical doctors in separate cases uh, who were convicted of prescribing controlled substances to patients outside the usual course of of a professional practice, and um, they appealed. And they appealed. And they, were in prison, they were in prison during the appeal. Is that correct? If you know, you may not know. I I, I think probably they were out on bond during the appeal. If, if their lawyers made those applications, okay. but they still were. I mean, the the ramifications, the consequences of a conviction are horrific. They're not practicing. They're it, it's horrible. And so. Um, the both of those defendants they were it was decided together by the Supreme Court because the issue was the same, and the issue was whether a doctor can use a good faith defense and and how that good faith defense needs to be framed before the jury and in both of them, the jury instruction um went against them on the good faith defense, and they were convicted and so the, the question really is. Whether a physician whose whose claims have prescribed controlled substances outside of the professional practice um, can that can that doctor raise the issue that he or she reasonably believed or subjectively intended that the prescriptions fall within the course of medical practice, and so it's this issue of whether the standard is objective, a reasonable physician. Or subjective. This this individual defendant, this doctor, and the government's position. Well, it's the standard of a reasonable physician, and it was the defense perspective that once the defendant says, "Hey, I thought I was authorized." Once the doctor says, "I believed I was authorized. I'm a physician. I'm authorized to prescribe controlled substances." Um, that then the government has the burden of showing beyond a reasonable doubt that the doctor knew that he or she was prescribing in an unauthorized manner or intended to do that. Essentially, this makes it much harder for the government since this case was decided and it was just this summer. um, It's going to be much harder for the government, I think, to make a, a, a controlled substance case against a physician. These were these were involved um, controlled substances that were were pain medicines, uh, pain pills. But, but their argument um, was they. But it, they it applies believe. equally to testosterone. But your argument, uh, I think, the argument that was being made was that they, at least the argument they're making is that they reasonably believe they were doing good for their patients, that they are prescribing within reasonable um, parameters. 
trying to help their patients as opposed to running a pill mill. Correct. And that they subjectively believed that this was the right way to practice, that these prescriptions were were authorized and the government has to show otherwise. And so it does make it harder for the government. Now, I mean, that's the good news. Obviously, these cases don't affect state court prosecutions. They don't affect medical licensing board inquiries or medical malpractice cases. But for federal controlled substance cases, this is a, a, a higher level, a higher burden to the government than it, it had expected it bears. I heard um, one person describe it saying that um, it does allow protections for a well-intended but bad doctor, meaning someone who is not performing according to what norms expect of them, but mm-hmm. it doesn't put them behind bars. I think that's... And that makes- and I think that kind of makes sense, Jeff. You, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. to put somebody behind bars just for you know negligence, let's say, doesn't doesn't really sit well in in the typical scenario in, in a in a court of law, right? I mean, there may be other ramifications for being a bad doctor, and there could be civil lawsuits, and there could be malpractice, and there could be a medical licensing board hearing, all sorts of other things. But to put somebody in prison when they meant well, thought they were doing well, had some basis for believing it, but were ultimately wrong about it. I'm not sure we want to make that a a criminal matter. Yeah. And I think um, the outcome of that Supreme Court case, which I'll inform our listeners, I understand it was unanimous. So you had a 9-0 decision, or maybe it was 8-0. I don't know if everybody was voting on that, but it was entirely unanimous without dissent. I don't know how frequently we see unanimous cases. Maybe all we hear about are the 5-4 cases or 6-3 cases. They get the press. Yeah, I think it means that that the court spoke uh, loudly and strongly on this matter, and it harmonizes with the rest of the criminal justice system where intent matters. Your frame of mind does matter. If a patient, if, if an individual ends up dead, the difference between um, intent to kill murder, uh, manslaughter, and just mm-hmm. negligence often depends upon what what was in your mind. What did you want the outcome to be? What did you intend? And right. um, this probably is no different, particularly when the stakes are high and your freedom's uh, at risk. So I, I actually think it was a, a good decision. Um, and right. I think if it's 9-0, it also implies that they believe it was a good decision. So yeah, there's some good news, I think, for those who prescribe out there because it had gotten ugly to the point where the number of physicians who even felt comfortable prescribing any controlled substances for treatment of pain has diminished probably by an order of magnitude, primarily right. because the stakes are so high. Do you want to be sure. that guy having to defend their license and for their freedom based on you know trying to help people with that others have abandoned, meaning that other doctors say they don't need the headache any longer? The challenge. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's it, it, it's tough. And, and uh, government prosecutors have gone after physicians for prescribing uh, pain medications. I, I've seen it. Uh, my firm has handled matters like that. And it's uh, it's always tough on the physician. Um, this this, I think, will will at least give a little bit more pause to the government before it brings a case. 
I saw one case in Medscape. It's one of our medical online journals describing a doctor who believed that he was going down because he didn't think he had a fair chance of fighting this and had pled guilty and was about to be sentenced. And after the Supreme Court case, Ruin came out, said he wanted to withdraw his plea. I, I don't know what the outcome of that will be, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, because the law has changed, whether um, the judge will grant his right, you know, grant the wish sure. the motion to withdraw. Yeah, no, and it'll come down to whether the issue was preserved for appeal and, you mm -hmm. know, exactly what was argued in, in the lower court proceedings. But um, but yeah, I, I could certainly see once the law changes uh, and there's a new standard, some of the more recent uh, conviction folks uh, say, hey, wait a minute, let's let's, you know, file some additional papers. So, um, Rick, we're getting close to the end of the hour, but I would be remiss if I didn't pick your brain about a hot topic out there. Research chemicals and peptides, et cetera, in the um, anti-aging space and the wellness space, because um, I know that you've thought about this and have written about it. Yes. I think the first point of departure is telling people what they are. What are these compounds that we're talking about for those who have never um, come across them? Sure. So there's a, a class of, of compounds typically referred to as peptides. There are various types of chemicals. The, the point is some of them are, are approved by FDA um, and have gone through the phase one and two and three clinical trials to, to be found safe and effective for uh, use in humans. Uh, but some of them haven't. They haven't been through that process. But there's been some popularity and some interest in some of these peptide chemicals that are not approved. They haven't really been studied in humans to the point where the, um, the FDA could make a determination. And so uh, to give two examples, there's one called BPC-157. There's another called TB-500. And what these are, these are peptide molecules that, uh, according to at least anecdotal reports, um, are effective in um, speeding up recovery after some type of uh, muscle tissue or tendon uh, injury. And so um, there are people who certainly, um, you know, patients or individuals who've heard about this and who are like, yeah, I would like to, to get my hands on this. I just tore my biceps or I just um, had some um, meniscus surgery and I want to be back up and running faster. And I've heard uh, that this will help me. Um, and even though the research is sparse, um, and, and the, even though these things haven't been approved to be prescribed to folks, uh, there are folks who are selling them over the Internet uh, as, quote, unquote, research chemicals, kind of a, a shady black market of, of, you know, kind of fraudulently marketed products claiming that they're for research, but really selling them to people to use on their bodies. But there are also physicians who are prescribing them. And that's become more of a common practice where there are progressive physicians who will look at a patient who's maybe had some type of trauma, injury to a muscle or a tendon or a ligament, and will prescribe those or similar types of products. And one of the concerns about it is 
whether what the legality of it is and uh, what the the ethical components of that practice would be. I think from from a physician's perspective, there's a fork in the road. There, there's FDA approved compounds, meaning that a drug sponsor has uh, pursued an application to the Food and Drug Administration for an indication, meaning that it may treat baldness, may treat heart disease or whatever, and it's gone through the requisite trials proving safety and efficacy, and the FDA has given its seal of approval for to allow that giant company to market for that single indication. And I think most physicians know that once a drug is approved, once a drug is FDA approved for the market for that indication, it can be used for any reasonable indication as long as you comport with the standard of care, you know, meaning that if there right. are other, if others are doing it, if you're not the only one doing it, then the state licensing board doesn't really care because they view this as silent label as opposed to off label. I mean, that's right. a better way to describe it, but that's a unique subset. It's you're taking a compound that has already received approval by the Food and Drug Administration, and you're just using for it some for, use, right? For, for some, some use. use, exactly. And the argument is, you know, well, the drug companies are perfectly delighted for this to take place because they don't have to sure. run that second trial again, which is very right. expensive and time-consuming. Right. And people are already prescribing it anyway for that, right? But, but that's a drug that has already been blessed by the FDA. Right. This is um, a different animal. What we're talking about now is is a, a compound, a chemical that has never been approved for anything. It's never been put through the trials that are necessary to see if it's safe or effective for anything in humans. And so, so from the FDA's perspective, they would interpret that as a drug, perhaps, you know, if somebody will pursue the application, getting ready to go into the um, investigation process. Um, meaning that it has to follow particular parameters and it has it's it's part of a research trial as opposed to part of normal prescribing and i think for many physicians because they're used to prescribing off label or silent label depending upon the label you want to use um, that they see this as just kind of a similar beast but it's there's nothing comparable to it Right. I mean, I, there's Two nothing, completely different things. They don't overlap yep. at all. The Venn diagram is the null side. No, no. By definition, they don't, because either it's approved for something by FDA or it's approved for nothing by FDA. And so these chemicals that we're talking about are not approved for anything. There might be some animal research or, or other stuff, but but this is really the the effectiveness is is really based on anecdotes. And speculation um, for you know word of mouth. Hey, this was great, and and my I, I healed up in half the time. And and you know even even if that's true, um, the, the way that ultimately those things will be prescribed in accordance with law would be after they've gone through the the phase one, two, and three clinical trials, invested and brought to to market by a. A pharmaceutical company. Um, so, so there's definitely legality issues. And, and the other thing that physicians who are doing this should be aware of is that they should look at their malpractice coverage because it's not uncommon in malpractice insurance uh, policies to disclaim the 
prescribing of unapproved drugs. I've seen policies that specifically have a provision that says that if if you're prescribing drugs that have not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, then you're not covered for that. And and that presents a problem that physicians should be aware of. Uh, obviously, you know, there some may may know that and they've just determined on a on a cost benefit perspective that it's worth um taking the risk and, and that's fine. But if you think about the doomsday scenario, let's say you're uh, a physician is prescribing one of these peptides uh that's not approved by FDA and a a patient has a stroke or some other cardiac uh, event and now the patient looks at and says, well, the only thing that's different uh, in the last few weeks has been I, I went on this physician's on this this physician's drug, these peptides, and he tells his family doctor, and the family doctor says, well, why would why would you be being prescribed things that are not FDA approved? I think there's there's something wrong with that. Um, maybe we better call the medical licensing board and. And, and file a complaint, and maybe the patient sees a lawyer. Then the lawyer looks at, talks to some orthodox clinicians, and, and they say, "Well, well, no, you don't prescribe, uh, prescribe unapproved drugs. That that departs from the acceptable and prevailing medical practices." And so the lawyer files a personal injury lawsuit for both compensatory and punitive damages, saying, "Hey, you know, you're prescribing something you shouldn't be giving." to any patient. And then let's say the medical licensing board then starts looking into whether there were other patients who were also being prescribed this chemical um, that's not been approved by the FDA. And so the doctor then sends the complaint of the medical licensing board and, and the lawyers summons and complaint for the personal injury case to his carrier. And guess what the carrier says? <laughs> you're not covered. Yeah, you're you're denied, out of luck, and That's so now I mean, yeah, this is, becomes a really bad day. And you know, it may it may be that you know it's unlikely these things will happen, um, um, but but it's possible, and it's also possible even that it could uh, get to the attention of a, a class action lawyer who wants to sue on behalf of all of the plaintiffs who were prescribed this um you know chemical or maybe a, a state or a federal prosecutor starts sniffing around and saying well wait a minute this is introducing misbranded and unapproved drugs into interstate commerce what's going on here so bottom line is you know knowledge is power and and I always tell physicians that um you know you should before you make whatever decision you're going to make about practices and and you know what you're going to prescribe you should really understand all the potential consequences and physicians should look if if they're involved in prescribing these peptides that are not approved they should at a minimum pull out your insurance policy go to the pages that deal with exclusions and look to see if the prescribing of unapproved drugs is excluded from coverage because if it is then just know you'll be on the hook if something goes wrong just to educate me if the doctor is prescribing these peptides where 
where do they get the peptides from? Because it's, I'm, I'm guessing they have to be injected. It's an right. infusion, is it not? I yeah. Mean, I yeah. Imagine if you eat it, your body, your stomach just right. breaks. Right. No, down. these would be these would typically be intramuscularly injected, and obviously they're not being made by any big pharma company because <laughs> they're, they're by definition they're not approved to, to be made by those companies. So they're being made typically by compounding pharmacies. Um, who are compounding these products and um, making them available to the physicians who are willing to prescribe them. But what's fascinating is that my, my understanding is the, the what compounding pharmacies are typically allowed to do is to concoct various combinations of existing pharmaceutical um, drugs that have been used in the past that have been shown to be f safe and effective, meaning that I, it wasn't clear to me that compounding pharmacies can skirt the underlying limitations that the FDA imposes anyway, even though they're a compounding pharmacy. Have I got that wrong? We could go, we could spend a whole nother hour <laughs> on, on okay. compounding pharmacy, but, but just in, in obviously in general, there was a time when when all prescriptions were compounded before the introduction of the mass production of of drugs if 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 Jeff wanted a a cough serum for his cough he'd go to his local apothecary and he would uh, ask for uh something in a in a cherry liquid oh no we don't have you know, well, I'm allergic to cherries, so we'll put it in a grape syrup or something like that and so each patient's prescription was individual, specific to that individual. And that really is the idea of compounding as well. It's where there's nothing that's there's a there's nothing that's appropriate that the mass production companies of big pharma makes, maybe because the dose isn't right or because the um you know the delivery method is wrong. I can't swallow a pill, so you're gonna have to make this medicine that's commercially available only as a pill into a liquid so I can swallow it, things like that. And and I, I think you've you've identified uh, an area that is is ripe for, for a lot of discussion and that is at what point does uh, compounding become more than or go further than what the law allows? At what point is it really no longer, um, you know, appropriate? And there are two separate statutes that, that deal with compounding, um, you know, that um, that are slightly different in terms of what they cover. One, one is more for mass production and, and the other is more for really specific individual, but the mass production is really more for doctor's offices. So we could go into what all of that is, but you're, you're certainly right. There's a, a question about um, whether any individual compounding pharmacy is, as you say, skirting or uh, going, certainly going beyond the scope of what the law would allow. Well, I, I know that's a nice segue to you and I having a, another podcast It'll be on compounding. Can I count on you to potentially participate in that or at least a similar type of topic going forward? Sure. I, I love chatting with you, Jeff, and um, I'd be happy to come on the show again and um, and chat about that or lots of other stuff. And, and meanwhile, let's let's keep working to expand our own individual health spans as much as possible. You and I are 
kind of uh, roughly about the same age. And, um, you know, I think we're both very, very active. I just came back from some hiking and canyoneering in South Utah, and I, I hopefully will will continue doing that for for many years ahead. And um, I uh, I look forward to uh, to chatting with you as the years go forward. Yeah, amen to that, Rick. Final question: How do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your mission? Sure, thanks so much. And I, it's it's Rick Collins, and uh, I do have a website at rickcollins.com. If folks are, you can Google me. I've, I, there's lots of videos and writings. Uh, I've been somewhat prolific through the years. Uh, if you're interested in following me easily and see what I'm what I'm up to most recently, you can follow me on social media. I have an Instagram page at Rick Collins ESQ. I have an account there. And um, I also am on Twitter at Rick Collins ESQ as well. So Follow me. Um, love to uh, to see some of your your listeners um, online. And we'll put this in the show notes. Rick, thanks for being generous with your time. Talk to you soon. Sounds great, Jeff. Thanks so much. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews, at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.